We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized, the brand new podcast Intelligence Squared is launching in partnership with ePadrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the show, Leah Thomas, whose new book, The Intersectional Environmentalist, looks at how deeper cultural conversations are shaping our understanding of the climate crisis. Our host for today's discussion is journalist Diora Shadijanova who is climate editor at Gal Damzine. Let's join Diora now to learn a little more. The fight for environmental justice and social justice are too often seen as two separate issues. The earth and the environment is one conversation and civil equality is another. However, more often than not, the two are inextricably linked. As climate change gets progressively worse, we're seeing that its marginalized communities in the global north and large swathes of the population in the global south who are bearing the brunt of it. In the US, communities of color are more likely to be located next to pollution sources such as landfills, power plants and incinerators, leading to an increased risk and illness and a lower life expectancy. Natural disasters such as hurricanes, floods and earthquakes also tend to have unequal impacts on communities of colour. Meanwhile, in the UK, 
10 million people don't have access to green space, be it a private or public garden. And if we look into that statistic further, almost 40% of people from ethnic minority backgrounds live in the most green space deprived areas, compared to just 14% of white people. I'm joined now by Leah Thomas, activist and author, whose new book, The Intersectional Environmentalist, explores the history of the intersections between environmental activism, racial justice, and social justice, while looking forward to forge a new path for positive and sustainable change for everyone. Leah, welcome to Intelligence Squared. So you've written this book called The Intersectional Environmentalist. And I guess my first question to you is, why do you think environmental and social justice issues are seen as separate matters? That's a really good question. I think part of it would have to do with some of the origins of the environmental movement. And a lot of the context that I'm bringing is kind of US specific, but I think is also kind of a global trend that we see. But in the United States, conservation in particular was something that was kind of focused on creating national parks and things like that. A really big focus on the protection of wilderness and endangered species. However, However, what was often left out of those narratives was how the creation of national parks also led to the displacement of indigenous peoples and culture, which some would see as kind of a social justice issue. So that's something that we've kind of seen throughout history, positioning environmentalism as something that has to do with wilderness protection or the environment and animals and kind of intentionally separating the people who are also a part of those environmental decisions. And I think leaving those narratives out of early environmental stories has led to kind of a misunderstanding of what environmentalism can be. And even if we zoom in on right now, when we're talking about the climate crisis, we see something really similar happen, where people are focusing on the science of the climate crisis and the science behind things like sea level rise or what you know an increase of emissions can do to our environment. However, there are people that are also a part of that equation, especially people who are the most impacted by these issues like sea level rise. So I think the lack of asking kind of who is being impacted by a lot of environmental decisions has led people to separate social justice and environmentalism for quite some time. Yes, absolutely. I must agree that what we're seeing right now in the world, how communities of colour are being disproportionately affected in the global north and we're seeing what's happening in countries in the global south, it's obvious that there is that distinction. So within intersectional environmentalists, you, I guess, make an argument that environmentalism must be intersectional. What is your argument here? My argument in the book is that any type of environmentalism that isn't considering what you just mentioned, the fact that people of color and low-income communities around the world are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis or environmental injustice, and for folks who aren't as familiar with what environmental justice is, I can maybe zoom out on one particular statistic that kind of started me on this journey in the United States, and we see similar trends throughout the UK and beyond, but I remember stumbling across this statistic that about 71% of African Americans in the United States live in counties that frequently violate federal air quality standards. So that's 71% of the Black community in the United States is breathing in polluted air. 
And to go beyond that, we're also seeing things like black and brown and low income communities around the world are living with something called a pollution burden, where they're breathing in more air pollution than they even cause. And we can take that even further with the climate crisis. They're experiencing the impacts of the climate crisis more, even though in large part, they are not leading to the climate crisis with their decisions. So that's why I think it's so crucial that we take an intersectional approach to environmentalism and really ask who is being the most impacted and is this a systemic issue that's impacting the same community over and over again? Because if we don't consider that, I don't think that our environmental efforts are very effective if it's leading to further marginalization of communities that are already impacted by social injustice. Yes, absolutely. I must say I agree with every word you just said. You mentioned something called environmental racism within the book. Many people might not be aware of that term. What, what does that mean? So environmental racism was kind of that terminology was born out of the environmental justice movement that happened in the 80s. And I think further context of where this terminology comes from helps to put it all together. And again, this is very U.S. specific, but it's something that's global. But in the U.S. in particular, in the 60s, we had the civil rights movement with leaders that many people are familiar with, like Martin Luther King Jr., etc., where they were advocating for racial justice. And then shortly after, in the late 60s and the early 70s, we started to see the Earth Day movement that was global where 20 million people from around the world were advocating for stricter environmental laws and policies. And what a lot of people don't know is that the Earth Day movement kind of used a lot of the tactics and were inspired by the civil rights movement. And that's why we see a lot of environmental protests that we have today that are rooted in civil disobedience. We really owe a lot of civil rights and social justice leaders and activists for the way the environmental movement has and currently practices civil disobedience and different forms of activism. So anywho, unfortunately, the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s wasn't really focused on racial justice, even though a lot of their tactics were born out of the civil rights movement. So we saw a lot of environmental laws being passed around the 70s, and we had you know hippies and environmental activists and things like that. But unfortunately, because racism or classism weren't really taken into account with a lot of those environmental decisions, we started to see that toxic waste was being diverted away from, say, wealthier and whiter neighborhoods, but it was being diverted towards more lower income and black and brown communities. So that's an example of environmental racism, where we see more toxic waste sites and landfills and highways in particular communities, especially black and brown communities, those really impacted by racial injustice. You can also describe environmental racism by things like not having enough trees or parks or access to green spaces. Whenever there's a kind of positive environmental benefit that we're not seeing as prevalent in black and brown communities, that's an example of environmental racism. Thank you so much for explaining what that looks like in the US. I mean, we have, you know, very similar issues here in the UK as well. Just recently, I've been keeping in touch with some of the activists who are part of the Stop Silvertown Tunnel campaign. It's a tunnel that's being built in a part of London that's already really polluted. And that part of London, which is in East London, especially in areas called Newham and Tower Hamlets, the population is largely made out of 
marginalized communities, many of whom are people of color and working class people of color. So, you know, we're seeing those divisions here as well. So with the book, I was wondering, who did you write it for and what are you hoping to achieve with it? Thanks for this question. I feel like in many ways, I kind of wrote it for my younger self. I studied environmental science and policy, and I was one of the only Black students in my classroom. And it was really hard for me to understand why, I guess, racial justice or women empowerment and so many of these things weren't deeply intertwined in my curriculum. And I think I also kind of had a feminist awakening um, when I was studying environmental science, especially because the environmental field is dominated by women. So I started asking a lot of questions just like, okay, why, even though women in large part didn't cause the climate crisis, are we being given the task of fixing the earth? And we see so many more women in this field. So I think I just had a lot of different questions when I was a younger environmentalist and I started finding things like ecofeminism that was answering a lot of the questions that I had. And then I also started finding things like environmental racism and environmental justice and intersectional theory, and it all started to make sense. And I started realizing across my studies that, okay, I don't have to separate my identity from my environmental practice because in large part it influences why I care about the world and the earth the way that I do. So I really wanted to create an introductory textbook for people who are starting their environmental journey or just had questions about how racial justice or the fight for gender justice, like how that has anything to do with environmentalism. And I wanted to break it down for people in a really accessible way. And my hope is that if people read a book like this earlier on in their environmental education, then they wouldn't have to ask those questions about why people and planet should both be considered. And not only that, we should make sure that we are centering the voices of people who are most impacted to make sure that we don't have environmental racism or as much in the future. I guess one thing we haven't mentioned is the economic system that large parts of the world live under, which is capitalism. And I think we can't really talk about achieving environmental justice or racial justice without addressing capitalism. Both you and several of your contributors in the book speak about the need to end it. So in your opinion, do you think climate justice is not really achievable without dismantling global capitalism? That's a really great question. I think this is always a hard question to answer. And I think a lot of it is informed by my time working at Patagonia headquarters, which in many ways, I would say Patagonia, they are really excellent when it comes to sustainable manufacturing and fair trade certification and things like that. However, at the end of the day, um, no matter how sustainable businesses practices are, arguably, we have enough shirts in the world already, like we don't need to make new things. There's a phrase that I really love, like if you shoot for the moon, you'll land on a star. Um, and when it comes to rethinking capitalism, I think I would be okay with landing on a star, which might be reimagining what capitalism can look like, where hopefully there's ethical manufacturing and different business practices are more sustainable and less harmful to the earth. But it is kind of a hard sell because it's something that we'd have to really reimagine the way that we 
participate in commerce. And I have so many ideas, some that are probably more radical and some that are more realistic. But I do think we need to do away with capitalism and its current state, especially because there's so much money in politics. And that's influencing climate decisions on a global scale in a way that is just horrendous, if I do say so myself. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. That's iq, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Well, talking of no ethical consumption under capitalism, uh, I must admit I hear this phrase very often and often it's used as an excuse not to really change the oppressive systems we live under or the status quo by people who definitely can do something about it. What is ethical consumption in today's world? You know, nowadays, large brands and corporations will tell us to buy organic or locally sourced products, but there's no proof necessarily that workers' lives are protected or improved. You know, how do you think people can navigate these choices to buy ethically? 
Yeah, I always try to be careful when I answer these questions because I don't want to promote elitism. And I think there's a lot of sustainable bloggers who just are not being honest. And I have that intel because they're getting sent like free sustainable clothing and like $200 and $400 t-shirts and dresses. And I know that that's not accessible to the everyday person. So I have to even recognize my privilege in this space of randomly getting emails from companies that I can barely afford asking to send me things. And I wish there was more transparency from a lot of activists or sustainable educators there. So I do want to acknowledge the inaccessibility when it comes to shopping sustainably. But in my opinion, something that I do try to promote a little bit more is shopping locally when you can. So supporting your local farmers or even if you have like a friend or something that's making really cool like small batch t-shirts that are upcycled um, or something like that when you can definitely supporting like local businesses. So not even those like big companies that are telling you that they're sourcing things as much as you can supporting your local economy or if there's like a little store that's not a really big chain and they are, you know, supporting the local community, trying to go to that convenience store instead of some like big chain or something like that. And I've lived in a lot of small towns across the United States where there really is an investment in the community and local farmers who are doing things better for the planet and local artisans that are doing things better for the planet. I think that's one of the ways to participate in I don't even want to say consumption because it sounds weird, but we all do consume things. Like if you do need a new t-shirt or something like that and you are able to support local, then, you know, do that. But I also want to encourage people to make the best decision for themselves. And that's something that I also, I always try to grapple with because I don't like elitism, but I also don't like people not being accountable. So there has to be a middle ground between finding something that's the most accessible and the most sustainable option for that person, which I think will look different for everyone. So if someone is extremely wealthy, I think, yes, you do have a responsibility if you can to buy clothing that is made as ethically and sustainably as possible if you can afford it. There was a video that came out with a really big celebrity and they were wearing clothing Sheen or Shein or something like that. And people were writing all these articles about, oh, my God, look how accessible they are. They're wearing something that we all can afford. And I really wanted to break that apart in a way that acknowledged that, yes, we need representation of celebrities and folks choosing very accessible options because that is relatable. But also knowing that they could afford to buy something that isn't made with child labor and violating a lot of environmental things, to me, that wasn't something to celebrate. So there's a lot of nuance in this space, and I feel like I'm learning every day. So talking, I guess, of sustainability bloggers, you know, some of them can come across quite performative online. And many people critique online activism as being performative so, for example, people will repost a well-designed infographic on their social media to alleviate feelings of guilt or to promote the appearance of doing good while not really making any changes in their attitudes or habits. Do you think there is truth to this concern that people are engaging with, I guess, content around a, a more sustainable world online, but actually when it comes to the practices in their life, they don't put their money where their mouth is. 
Yeah, I would say that this is always tricky. And I think people would be surprised at how many people during the Earth Day movement or the civil rights movement maybe felt some sort of element of peer pressure and like they were down for the cause, but they were like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to go, but like all my friends are going to the civil rights protests. Like this feels historic. I should be there. And that's something that probably has happened all throughout history. There's probably been some performance element to some activism and even specifically talking about the UK in particular, I think in the US, climate activism is a little different. So there's, I would say a lot of performative elements to even in-person demonstration in the UK that is primarily like white-led. And I could argue like, what are y'all doing for climate justice and racial justice? Like you might be chaining yourself to something for photos or public disruption, but that's not a privilege that many black and brown folks. So I could go back and forth on that. To answer your question specifically about social media, I would ask them, like, how do you know? Like, if you know this person personally on, like, a deep level and you're able to assess that they are doing absolutely nothing other than sharing an infographic or something like that, then maybe if they're a close friend of yours, you can talk to them and kind of encourage that they get involved in organizing. But it's hard for me to understand, I guess, the negatives of awareness, sharing or uplifting a a message that is really important and needs to be heard. At least they are sharing. So for me personally, like I don't want to focus my energy on like stressing out whether or not I think someone is morally superior or not, like if they are taking action. And I think also just leading with example, like if you know someone and they might be, you know, sharing something publicly, but they might not be involved in local organizing. I think Michaela Loach, who's a really great activist in the UK, does a great job of providing people pathways to get involved with local organizing. But also it's just so hard. We don't know everyone's personal story. Like maybe social media is the way that that person can participate right now. And if that's kind of an entry point, I don't think we should be discouraging folks in that way. So that's just what I can say for individuals. But my take on corporations is completely different. They need to be doing more if they're just sharing a graphic or something like that and not funneling funds to grassroots climate activism, then I have a lot harsher words for them. But I do think that in the climate space, people can be very critical in ways that I find to be unproductive and honestly mean and self-righteous. And I don't think that that's okay. Well, that leads very nicely to my next question. Big corporations seem to be increasingly environmentally conscious We've even seen that Boohoo has got a new, um, Boohoo is a fast fashion company, for those who don't know, has got a new environmental collection out with Kourtney Kardashian. Are you optimistic that things are really changing for the better or are we living in a time of complete greenwash? I did see that announcement and it made me really sad because I feel like that is, like you mentioned, a perfect example of greenwashing especially when there are folks that have the power and resources to create a completely like sustainable and ethical brand. Or, you know, maybe that celebrity could have even put the pressure on Boohoo to change their practices as a whole versus just kind of like launching one small brand. And I think there's also a lot of really qualified folks that these large brands could work with if they genuinely wanted to kind of shift their manufacturing processes. So 
Yeah, I think these large corporations are on to the fact that Gen Zers and millennials want to purchase from brands that care a little bit more about people and the planet. So I think it's going to be harder and harder for people to suss out greenwashing, which is really unfortunate. But then I would just encourage folks, like if it's a large brand, they haven't redeemed themselves if they've just released one small collection That, in my opinion, is maybe a step in the right direction, like 0.001% step in the right direction, but that isn't redemption. And to try to avoid some of those large corporations that are doing that until they have redeemed themselves, and I think redemption might be possible if there's a lot of significant changes. But in the meantime, support those kind of smaller businesses or even go thrift shopping or things like that. My final question is, the UK edition of your book has contributions from many UK-based writers and activists. How does this differ to other versions of the book and why was it important to include domestic examples for different markets? I thought it was really important because climate activism in the UK is so, so different than climate activism in the United States. In many ways, I would say it is more progressive in terms of the amount of people that are mobilized for climate action on a regular basis. And there's so much that I think organizers in the U.S. are learning. However, I would say the United States, because they have such a history of environmental justice and kind of connecting it to racial justice, unfortunately, there are a lot of climate organizers in the U.K., where climate justice may center around and take classism into example. Racism is something that isn't, I would argue, like tackled enough by a lot of climate organizers in the UK. So I've met with a lot of black and brown climate organizers in the United Kingdom that are trying to change things. And they're doing incredible work, like people like Dami Palmer and Michaela Loach, to really try to make climate organizing in the UK more intersectional in nature and to focus on racism and gender justice in the same ways that people focus on classism. And in the United Kingdom, it's hard to explain, but conversations about classism, I feel, are more progressive in the United Kingdom than in the United States. However, I would argue, if not to generalize, Racism is talked about a lot in the United States in ways that it isn't talked about in the UK. And I think that is negatively impacting a lot of climate organizers of color in the United Kingdom, especially because climate organizing is huge. Organizations like Extinction Rebellion are humongous. And I can walk into a bookstore in the United Kingdom and find so many books on climate organizing from really large environmental organizations. And it's not the same in the United States. I can't walk into a bookstore here and find books by like Extinction Rebellion or How to Be a Climate Activist, etc. So I thought it was really important in this different market that already has a lot of books, a lot of events, a lot of climate organizing to be able to hear directly from climate organizers of color across Europe. So there are folks from the UK and there's also folks from Germany, um, New Zealand and Australia and beyond. And I think their voices just really, really need to be uplifted and amplified just because climate activism looks so different in both places if that if that makes sense thank you leah that was leah thomas author of the intersectional environmentalist which is available now from profile books i've been diora shadajanova 
You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.